Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome to Deep Dives into the Bible, where we take our time and go deeply into God's Word. I am Father Michael Nasser from St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And today we are finishing, uh, hopefully, our study of Matthew chapter 17, maybe getting into Matthew chapter 18, which is episode 69 in our discussion on the Gospel of Matthew. I am here with members of our St. Nicholas family, and we are very happy you've joined us. So let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind, the pure light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understanding the gospel teachings. Implant in us all so that fear that blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, thine all-holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Oh, Sam is live. I'm in live person. For the first time in a while. Not, not live from Italy. <laughs> Glad to have you back safely. Good to be back. So before we get uh, into going forward, I want to go back a little bit. We were talking, I believe, last time about this idea of uh, what Jesus says, that, that uh, it's a sinful and adulterous generation. So we talk about that adulterous idea. And I mentioned to you that in the Bible, um, God describes unfaithfulness in the terms of not being obedient and loyal to him in terms of unfaithfulness as we typically think of that word say about an, an unfaithful spouse that that being uh leaving the committed relationship and joining with another outside that committed relationship so i mentioned it to you then and we, we moved on but this morning i was continuing my reading i'm i and several of us have been going through a uh, read the Bible in three years, sort of a chapter a day-ish kind of a, a schedule. And today, I, my reading for today was Ezekiel chapter 23. And if you want to flip back to it, those of you that have your Bibles that have a, an Old Testament, feel free to flip back or go back later on. Uh, Ezekiel 23, I think, is probably one of the more graphic and... Um, thorough descriptions where God talks about um, unfaithfulness in terms of this sexual impurity or sexual um, uh, unfaithfulness. So it starts out, and, and Ezekiel says, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they committed fornication in Egypt while still young. Their breasts fell while there, and their virginity was lost. Their names were Eloha the elder, and Elohiba the sister. They were mine. They bore sons and daughters. As their names, Samaria is Eloha, and Jerusalem is Aholiba. So already there's a, a big uh, mark against God's people in Jerusalem. Uh, so, so by saying that there were two daughters, they were both uh, unfaithful. They both committed fornication. One is this sort of, you know, distant cousins, but but ritually impure people, the Samar the Samaritans. But equating them with Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the holy city. 
This is this is where uh, the temple was built. It's the center of their religious life where the offerings are made. So already he's saying, look how bad they were. They're 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 equal to each other. Your own prize city where I'm supposed to be worshipped is equal to this other, not considered a a, a valuable place. And then I'm not going to read much, but if you go through the rest, it's a, very, it's a pretty long chapter. Um, he really goes very deeply into this idea of adultery, fornication, violating virginity, unfaithfulness. Um, the word whoring in the English translation is there over and over again. I think, I think my this translation here has offered herself. Um, but the other translation I was listening to was, was whoring. So very graphic, very sort of a visceral idea of unfaithfulness. And I just, I, when I read it this morning, I thought, you know, I really need to bring that as an example. Um, feel free to uh, go back and look at it if you want to get a better idea of what we were talking about when God uh, talks about uh, his people's unfaithfulness as that sort of marital infidelity. It's in chapter 13? 23, Ezekiel 23. All right, so last time we got caught, we couldn't finish the section we were on, so we're going to go back again into that a little bit. Um, we were looking at uh, chapter 17, and we had covered uh, 14 through, uh, I believe, 20 or 21. That's that missing verse we talked about in some of the translations. And that's, by the way, if you look at 17, that's where Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long am I going to be with you? That's where that came from. Uh, but we didn't get a chance to finish with chap with verses 22 and 23. So let's take that really quickly before we go on to the next section. Somebody read for this uh, 17, chapter 17, uh, verses 22 and 23. Now, while they were while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, "The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up." And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Okay. Now, this is not the first time I've heard this. I can't remember how many times we've had before. I think this, this is the second or the third. Um, but we're getting closer to what we know of as Holy Week, uh, Passion Week, or Christ's Passion, Crucifixion, Resurrection. We're getting closer, but this is not the first time. But what you're seeing now, and I don't know if they had this before, uh, they're greatly distressed at this. You know, they had been following him for a longer time. They were... Um, more integrated into his message. They had now been working miracles um, with his commission to go out and heal. Um, and he's telling them again, the son of man has been delivered in the hands of men. They'll kill him, raise him the third day, and they're greatly distressed. So he's getting closer to what his ultimate goal and mission is going to be. And they're continuing to struggle with that because they want the part of it that they've been enjoying, their closeness with him, seeing him do the miracles, uh, listening to his teaching, seeing more and more people following him. And so this is greatly distressing to them. And that's going to flow into uh, the next section, the next couple of sections, actually. Any thoughts or questions on that before we move on? Were they expecting it? I can see being sorrowful to hear it. Yeah. Weren't they expecting it? Well, he'd, in the one sense, you'd say, well, they should have been. Right. This is not the first time he's told them, but it's not going along with their mission with him as they understand it. Now, how much they're still hoping that he's some sort of earthly 
savior? We don't know. Uh, there are those that, that were always looking uh, to Jesus to be a savior in whatever terms they were looking for a savior. And many of them, of course, would, would love to see that he was going to save the, the, the Jewish people from their oppressors, the Romans. Um, that was, I'm sure, on some of their minds. But by this time, you'd think, okay, they should have gotten the idea that it's not about that. However, here he is saying it for the second or third time. It's getting closer, um, and they're still not on board with it. They're confused. Yeah, they're so confused. Does they're this, distressed. Does this have to do with him reprimanding them all about the faith still? That's what I was they're yeah, confused about right. that. So why wouldn't they be confused about the crucifixion? Exactly. Yep. And again, we read ourselves in the story as we should. And how many times do we feel that we're being led by what Christ says the church is teaching us, but it's not where we want to go. Uh, this last Sunday was the feast, uh, September 17th, every year is the feast of St. Sophia, who was a mother who had three daughters, faith, hope, and love, or faith, hope, and charity, depends how you translate it. Um, our parents, I can tell you, are greatly distressed when they hear that story, right? Everybody is. But, but I think parents in a unique way, because what the story says is Christian life is defined by a faith by which you would even encourage your children to be slaughtered for their faith in Christ. I think all of us facing our own martyrdom have a reasonable level of pre trepidation. Uh, but a parent offering their child for that, I think, is just a whole other level. Um, or anybody, whether you have your children or not, thinking about sending a child into that kind of experience. And yet, that's the, there's a reason we celebrate St. Sophia and her children. That's the standard that Christ is saying and the church is teaching us. That's what Christian life looks like if it comes to that, that we don't put limits. We don't say, well, okay, I'll give this much, but not that. I'll suffer, but not my kids. And the fact that, you know, in this case, you're, you're making a good connection with what Jesus says in the, in the last part of the section. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's not saying they're going to be, right? That, that'll come later. But even the fact that he's going to be, they're distressed. In other words, Lord, we know that, that we, were, we love your miracles. We love your teachings. You know, we, we know the Pharisees give you a hard time. And that's okay. We can deal with that. But this, no. That's just, it's a bridge too far. Um, it's just, again, a good reminder for all of us that we should not be setting those limits. We should be listening to what God says. And then how do we, how do we move those limits forward? It's by his strength. I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. Um, that phrase, the son of man, um, I've always been kind of confused by it. Why, in a, and how would this be different if he had merely said, I am about to be betrayed. Yeah. Yeah. The son of man. And I was going to do some research on this. At some point I'll, I'll do that some more. Well, you, you heard it in the, in the chapter I just mentioned to you uh, when God is talking to Ezekiel and I won't put now, but he calls Ezekiel son of man. So there's a biblical precedent for son of man. And, and I'd have to go back and we could do some research on, what context that's been used. But I think for our purposes, the fact that Christ refers to himself as the son of man 
you you say you describe somebody in a term that distinguishes them. Okay. Um, a lot of of languages, the last name is who you're the son of, right? Deacon right. Justin Adolfson. Right. Somewhere in his family, there was an ancestor whose father was Adolf. And so the son becomes Adolfson. Um, in in uh, um, Hebrew, it's uh, Ben, right? Simon or Bar, Simon Bar Jonah. Um, in um, Arabic, Ibn, right? There you go. So, you know, Yusuf Ibn Khalid or whatever, it's the son of that father. So it, it, it distinguishes who that is by who they're connected to. So you'd say, well, the son of man, aren't we all a son of man? That there's no distinction there. But for Jesus, that's a distinction because he's the son of God who's now accepting that title, son of man. That's his distinction. Of, of the persons of the Trinity, he's the son of man. Now, there's more to it, and then I'll have to go back and do some more research, but because um, both titles are going to be used in different contexts, son of God and son of man. And Jesus is uniquely both. He's the only one that's both. So he can use both of those interchangeably because he is both. Um, but his his sonship of man is I'll give me some trouble if I say the change. This is this is the this is where theological language we have to hold back from going too far. Because did did Jesus change when he became a man? Obviously, in some sense, yes, he took on humanity. There's a change before he was not incarnate, and then he became incarnate. That's one of our teachings. We also say that he never changes. Yeah, we say that in the in the person, unchanging. Yeah. Unchanging. Yeah. It enters into human experience. Because when is when to God? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Human it it enter, the incarnation enters into human experience at right. a particular point. But so there's a change. To God. But does he change? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> and that's where paradox, if we're smart, we 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 pull up that line and we stop. Because if you keep going. When you break a paradox, when you push it too far, it breaks, which means you're going to do something wrong. Paradox are two things that shouldn't go together, but they do go together, right? The Theotokos is the virgin mother. Those things shouldn't go together, but they go together. Um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, it was yesterday, and they were talking about when Moses gets the Ten Commandments, we think of it in our day and age, mostly those of us who have seen the Ten Commandments says that lightning coming down and yeah. writing in the, in the, and the, the, it was Father Stephen Young. He said, no, that was Jesus writing with his finger. Yeah. So here you are, many hundreds and perhaps thousands of your devotees, what, what time will you fall before the incarnation? And Jesus is writing with his finger on the stone on Mount Sinai. Well, what one of my favorite hymns, it's somewhere during Holy Week. That is, um, how's it how's it go? It's you say it's um the feet, the feet that Adam and Eve heard in the oh, garden, yeah. or the feet that yeah. Mary bathed with her right. the anointing oil. Yeah. You know, they're the same feet. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because when is when? 
But that that phrase, Father, that phrase son of man, it's really interesting because like Jesus almost exclusively refers to himself as the son of man. Right. People, other people don't refer to him as son of man. Right. Um, because it's a very loaded term at that time because of Daniel 7. Okay. The son of Daniel. We'll about see. that. Well, how does Daniel use it? So Daniel uses it. You know, Daniel has this vision and he sees the ancient of days, the father. <laughs> you know, saying wrong. And he sees the ancient of the days giving authority, dominion to this son of man character yeah, coming on the clouds. So you have, and this is why it's one of the reasons why the Trinity is not invented yeah. <laughs> by right. apostles. Um, you have this son of man figure coming in. And this is what, and we're going to see it later in Matthew, because what's he say to the priests and the, and the, and the, and the scribes? The Sanhedrin during his trial it says, "You will see the Son of Man right. coming in cloud," and they say that's blasphemy. Right. So he's claiming So, Son of Man, it's actually almost like kind of like opposite what we would normally say. We right. go, "Oh, somebody calls themselves the Son of God. That's their claim to divinity." Right. Actually, the the much more the much more outlandish claim Christ is making is when he ref repeatedly refers to himself as the Son of Man because right. he's saying, "I am this divine figure." That we know from Daniel, that is going to be given authority to judge the nations, right? Which properly only really should apply to God, right? Or to go who God shares that yeah. with. That's blasphemy. You're yeah. saying you're God. Yeah. You're exactly. saying you have the prerogative, and this is this is what we see when him kind of going around forgiving sin, yeah, creating all this trouble, right? And, you know, and he doesn't <laughs> go out of his way. To say that a lot, right? right. Somebody asked last right. week about why does he always, you know, say when he heals me, don't say anything. Yeah. He's not going out and saying, let me, with the power that I have available to me, prove who I am. Because he could have done that. In fact, we looked two weeks ago at the transfiguration. He could have done that in the middle of Jerusalem. That would have solved all kinds of problems. But that's not why he came. He didn't come to prove himself. He came to offer a relationship with him, not based on proof, but based on faith. And so he's going to limit the times, although there are many times, there are some times when he refers to himself that way. He could have said I, and he uses that, like you said, that loaded term, son of man. In John's gospel, you know, I am. Yeah. Is also, right. I am. Right. Ego me, like that is God. Yeah. I am. Right. I am. Yeah. 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 Anybody who tells that Jesus never claimed divinity, that's just not true. He didn't go out of his way to do it all the time. But when he did it, he did it very clearly <laughs> and, you know, unmistakably. Yeah. Do you know somebody that, you know, anybody that leads a life like you described with Sophia, where they sacrifice their children? A modern day, I know probably some of the saints. I don't know enough. I, I'm sure I probably have, and I probably wouldn't know it. Yeah, it's 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 one of the interesting things. The saints are typically discovered long after their death, hmm. partly because we all know each other, and we know each other with our strengths and our weaknesses, and so somebody's strengths are often counterbalanced. Um, there was some discussion about a, a fairly modern, uh, very influential writer 
And somebody said, you think he'll ever be canonized? He died I don't know, 20 years ago or so. Oh, no, no. How could they? He was a smoker. <laughs> so that uh, that image would spoil their image of what a saint would look like. right? Well, we know St. Maria Paris was a smoker. And yet we overcome that after the fact because we see the other things sort of grow. But, I mean, I, I, I've seen great faith to that degree. It's hard to say until somebody would have to go through with that. Or maybe just closer. Yeah. That degree is hard. Yeah. I think the closest we get to seeing it in a visual way are, are the monastics who, you know, in many ways you'd say, well, they live a humble life, of course, but they really give up everything that they have the chance to give up. They don't choose what they eat. They don't choose where they live. They don't choose how they spend their day. Um, they don't go on vacation. They don't, all these things that we value, like, what am I going to do today? Or what am I going to do this weekend? Like, they don't do that. And every day, in some ways, is like the day before. Unending. Um, Aren't we called to get to that point? I mean, that's... That's why, that's why it's important to have monasteries nearby, because it's not like they have one kind of spirituality, we do another kind. But it's degrees. Mm -hmm. And it's type. Like, often monastics will say that they are so inspired when they see young families come to the monastery because they say, you know, very humbly they say, well, yeah, we go to church. We just, we walk across the yard and it's there and it's quiet and wonderful. They go, you, you parents, you have to dress your children and you have to, you know, figure out how much they can fast and, and how does that change over time and keep them quiet in church and, and, and balance your, your, their school and your work. So it's just different ways. But I think there is a degree of, of total dedication that you get out of that environment. And, and you can see it, 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 it becomes not just personalized in each of them, but it kind of imbues the environment. Like you walk on the grounds and it feels different. Like this is not just like any other place. In some ways, not even just like walking on the church grounds. It's just it's constantly sanctified by prayer. They're, they're, they're praying all the time. They go to church. And then they're praying in between services. And they're praying while they're doing their, their jobs or what it happens to be. Um, that's, I would say that's one of the places I've seen that kind of faith. I think, I think it's interesting, too, because it's pretty, I mean, we're just coming out of the, um, the exaltation on the cross. Right. Um, the, the kind of preface to all of this was, you know, Peter makes his confession. Peter, you're great. You got it. And then immediately that, that, you know, that kind of understanding warrants Jesus to go, okay, let me actually tell you what this is about. And he says, whoever wants to follow me must take up their, their right. cross. And it's interesting because Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross mm -hmm. and follow me. It doesn't say take up my cross. Right. So St. Sophia had to take up her cross and right. she had to exhort her daughters to take up theirs. Right. The monastics in the monastery have to take up their cross, and the, as you're saying, they'll 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 notice people taking up their own crosses yeah. and going, "Wow, that's the, yeah, wow." And so, getting your kids ready and doing all these things are also like, what are what are your particular crosses in your vocation, right? As a parent, as a priest, mm -hmm. as a layperson, as a bishop, as as what have what right. have you? Yeah, and they're going to look different. Yeah, different crosses. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but 
but they'll all, all like following crosses. Jesus, but right. they're still all crosses and they're still all following Christ. Right. And I think if whatever cross is ours, our, our, our God knows us and loves us, which means he's not going to permit a cross that is too much for us. Mm-hmm. And that's again, where that, that sort of like fork on the road of faith. If we're following our way, we'd say, well, I'll do this, but not that. Right. If Christ is the Lord and that term, the master, the one we serve, the one who we get our direction from, then whatever way he puts in front of us, then that becomes our way. And it's not up to us to figure out, do I have it? Do I want it? I, 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 no, it's, I go where the Lord has told me. And you'll see how even in the Matthew story, you're going to see the faith of the apostles. You're going to see the lack of faith of the apostles up until the very end. And then what happens after Matthew in Acts and in other writings is you're going to see how at some point the apostles and then others that they bring along switch over from being distressed like they are here in, in 17 verses 23 to themselves willingly going to their own deaths. That will happen in every one of their cases because they learn over time that it's not up to them and they, they don't do it as we kind of imagine like, Oh, that's such an awful thing. That's why we don't want to do it. Cause we're still, we're on our agenda. We're in our limitations. They eventually throw their loyalty onto him completely and go, and especially because he, look at what he tells them. The son of man delivered to the hands of men. They'll kill him and he'll be raised. He doesn't say they're going to take me. They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me. Get ready, period. And he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So they're not, they're focusing on the killing part. They're not getting the whole resurrection part, which is why they're distressed. Why would St. Sophia offer her children? She knows that for all the horrors, what they're going to go through in a very short term, as horrible as it is, she's convinced that there's a lifetime of joy in paradise awaiting. So it's just like when we tell our kids, come on, you got to eat your vegetables. We know they don't like it, but they need it. It's good for them. She knows this is good for them. She's not seeing it in the way that we in our limitation would say, well, how could you do that to your child? No, she's seeing the whole picture, and that's how she can do it. You, you said earlier they were confused, like the apostles are confused, but notice the words distress. Yeah. Or the other one is sorrowful. They're not confused. They don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. it's 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 like um, you know, when Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him, it's not that he didn't get what he said. Mm-hmm. He got what he said and he didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And how much they got, how much right. their distress was being confused, we don't know. They weren't getting it, that's for sure. Right. Distressed. All right. Anything else there before we move on? All right. Let's go on to uh, 1724. And this is one of the, I would call one of the strangest little snippets in, in, in the life and acts of Jesus. But there's a lot here. So would somebody read for us uh, verses 24 to 27? Thank you. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. 
And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or their strangers? Or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we have <clears throat> go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. It's strange. Isn't that strange? <laughs> okay, so to, to give it a little uh, context, not to go too deeply, there was a half shekel tax. There was something you, you had to pay going up to the temple. Um, by the way, and, and we have a, a stewardship campaign coming up. Notice that this is a tax. And Jesus is going to, uh, in a sense, he'll, he'll criticize who pays it. But don't take this to mean like we should confuse our stewardship with a tax. Obviously, there's, there's a problem with it being a tax, but we won't go into that at this point. Um, but there was, in other words, it's, you have to pay it. It's not a free will offering. It's not do you want to pay it. It's you want to get in. This is what it costs. Okay. So they ask Peter. The collector that went up to Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? All right. So Peter now has the question. Peter says, yes. Now Peter walks in the door, and what's the very next thing that happens? Jesus said, what do you think? Yeah. Okay. Did Peter tell him or ask him the question? No. All right. And it's very clear. When he came home, Jesus spoke to him first. So before Simon can ask the question, Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute from the sons or from others. Now, what's what's the meaning of that question? I want to make sure we get, all get the context. Jesus is clearly saying that he is the son of the king of kings. There you go. Okay, so they're about to talk about what payment Jesus and Simon are going to pay. <coughs> and he's saying, okay, it's a tax. So here, how does tax work? Does the royal family tax themselves or do they tax others? He says, from others. Jesus says, and so the sons are free. In other words, you know, the prince doesn't pay tax to the king because he's the prince. The prince goes out and collects tax from the people. <clears throat> so it's, it's a discussion, as Kathy said, it's about what is Jesus' status and by extension Peter now. The sons are free. In other words, they don't owe this tax. Why don't they owe it? Because he's royalty. He's 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 related to the king. Yeah. And what's his reason? Verse 27. Not to give offense. Yeah. Okay. So he could have taken the stand. And this is, again, going back to, is Jesus going to make his primary message I'm the son of God. No. He could have said, no, I don't pay. That's my father's house. And then, but as not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Because the shekel, remember, is a half shekel tax. One shekel pays for two people, him and Peter. 
know, tuck that in your head for a minute because we go to the next section. Um, it, it connects to what's coming next, but. So what do we think? What's going on here? You're all the online people are quiet today. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking that um, <clears throat> it's just interesting that the conversation was with Simon, Peter, outside the building. But Jesus, already knowing that that d discussion was going on, he anticipated him saying, I mean, even before Peter came in the door, Jesus knew and was speaking directly to his awareness of, of that. And I think for Simon's sake, just it's another confir confirmation to him of how in tune Jesus is with um, all that's going on around. And um, I don't know, I just, I just think about the fact that he knew that that fish was going to have the gold coin in its mouth. <laughs> you know, right. he had the wisdom to tell him where to find it. Um, Peter was probably really wondering, wow, how's, how are we going to deal with this? Because, you know, we don't, you know, how, how is this going to happen? You know, but I just think it's kind of cool that Jesus knowing all things, um, has that um, ability to, to comfort Simon and knowing, hey, look, I got this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Simon is going to, by the time this is over, he's going to have to head out fishing. All right. And he's going to go grab his net or his pole or whatever. And with the idea of finding the fish with the coin in its mouth. Right. Think about it, Peter, thinking about for, forget the part that you're bringing up, which is, I think, very important. But had he not experienced walking in the house and Jesus answering his question before he's been asked. Right. If that didn't happen, I mean, Peter's seen other things, so he might. But that walk to the lake is a whole lot different because of that, which is a great point, Carolyn. He is looking back immediately on this miraculous thing that happened just with his question being answered before it's asked. Right now, he still has to go fishing <laughs> to find the fish with the coin in its mouth. But I think it's a lot easier for him to do that, knowing that yet again, Jesus has shown he's not just an ordinary man. There's something else going on with Jesus. And so Simon, as he goes fishing, has that fresh in his, his experience. I think that's good for us to remember because when we face our future or coming or the acts of faith that are before us to take, before we take them, um, I think one of the things we don't do enough is we don't look back to go, what have I already experienced? Right? So going back to St. Sophia and her children, she's facing this very, very difficult option. Do I offer my children and encourage them to face their horrible torture and death? What is she going to rely on as the strength to make a good decision? Something's been happening in her for a while. We don't know all that was. We don't know what her conversion is like exactly and all these things. What we do know that something went on or some things went on, but in her past. She didn't have to wonder ahead only and go, well, this is a tough choice. 
she could look back and go, based on what all those, those things happen to be, this is my next step. It's a hard one, but it's I could take this next step. So I think it's a good example of, of when we're facing those choices, you know, we, we can look back and go, who is this God that's asking this next difficult thing of me? And what have I already experienced from him? Even yeah. when we're in the midst of the stress or being distressed, mm -hmm. and we do get confused and mm -hmm. then we get afraid. Yeah. How do we move forward? I mean, you can go back and think, okay, this is what he's provided me before. Mm -hmm. I should have enough faith that he's going to get me through this. And yet, you get scared, distressed, yeah. confused. Sure. So if you didn't have the past to look on, it is simply about, I've got to try to do this thing ahead of me that's right in front of me, right? Hard. Is it any easier if you can look back and go, that was a hard thing, got through that. That was a hard thing, got through that. That was a hard thing, got through that. Would that help? It does help. Yeah. You've got to get your, your mind and to remember. Yeah. And, and remember, you know, I mean, not that you wouldn't remember it, but validate that that was, that was him getting yes. through it. Yes, that's the answer to your question. You just said it. <laughs> we validate, that's a great word, we validate those things that we could easily forget, or we might easily invalidate them. You might say, well, that was them, but we don't know about now. Or you could say, okay, I remember that. I remember what it was like to be on the other side of it before I went through it. And I didn't know how God would get me through, but he did. And they did the other one and the one after that. So that's one of the ways. It's not the only way because you're still, if that took care of it for you, then you don't need your, your faith to take the next step. But as we see the apostles doing all the time here, they don't want to take the next step. It's not easy. Faith is always going to be a tough thing to do. But if you can look back and go, okay, there he was and he had me. He, he, he carried me through, didn't get away from it, didn't get out, didn't, didn't, I couldn't avoid it, but he got me through it. Then you can say, now I take that faith and I take my next step. We would like to say all of that means it's an easy next step, but that means we don't need faith for it. So really, faith requires you to look back. It really helps. It really helps. I think we don't do it enough. Yeah. I think I heard this one time. He says, if you're driving on a long journey, and you ever been in one of those raging rainstorms where you can hardly see the road? Right. You know, how am I going to get through this? And then all of a sudden, it clears and it's yeah. sunny. And I go, God, if I had just known that, <laughs> yes. it would have been so much better. Yeah. Yep. Yep. As soon as it's done, I go, Thank you, God. Yeah. Thank you, God. Yeah. Or at least find me an exit. Right. Get off. Yep. Father, I think there's there's something else here that um, I don't know if I'm reiterating what's already been said. Forgive me if I am. But um, Jesus says the sons are free, right? This is uh, yeah. this is continuing from verse 26. Lest we offend them. So he's sensitive to offending other people. And I think yeah. very often that's a, that's a thing that's as we, if somebody does something to us or towards us, you know, that's offensive, you know, asking the King to pay a tax when he, this is his 
father's house. Kind of offensive. And then you kind of want to offend them back by saying, no, I'm the king and I deserve to go in there. Instead, he goes ahead and pays the tax lest he offends them. And I think that's a small lesson for for us, maybe. Oh, I think it's huge. Yeah. One of the most, I'll say, controversial sermons I ever preached in terms of feedback I got. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Actually, controversial. You should write a book. It was taken as controversial. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear what it was. Was um, when I addressed when I addressed the the Black Lives Matter. Okay, uh, a lot of people were upset that I would embrace that term, but I was very careful how I embraced it. I said. Do I believe that all lives matter and that black lives matter is unnecessary and incendiary and divisive? Yeah, I, I, that's my personal belief. But somebody else is saying it not from my place. They're saying it for a place where, if I take them at their word, they feel like their life is not valued. So I could stick to my own position and say, well, all lives matter and you shouldn't say that. But my point was we should not give offense. So if somebody says that, we should hear it as what they mean by it instead of imposing our understanding. And I think that leads to a lot more um, discussion, conversation, unity. Whereas right now, especially because I think mostly because of social media, but it's, it's more complicated than that. Our current societal kind of environment doesn't want cooperation, doesn't want unity, doesn't want understanding. It wants division. And if you understand division and understand the the meaning of the word devil, you'll know where that's coming from. The devil is the diablo, the divider. His job is to set one against the other. Now, Jesus will say that in a very different way, that he's come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. But that's a, that's a different context. But in this sense, when division is being generated for the sake of division, that's that's demonic activity. That's that's the evil one and, and, and the forces of evil. So, yeah, I think it's an important point, Rick, to say that when we can avoid giving offense, here's Jesus giving us a good example. Don't don't give offense when you can avoid it. He, he had every right to. He didn't need to pay the tax. He had every right according to his position, who he was to say, no, no. And then more so, um, he doesn't say, well, okay, here's, here's go, go get the coin and get the change because I don't have to pay, but you do. <laughs> right? It's a half shekel tax. I don't have to pay, but he pays it for me and for, and for Simon and for, your, for yourself. What is he saying about Simon? He's also a yeah. Simon is also now a son. He's he's in he's a prince. He's part of the royal family. He doesn't need to pay. Go pay the tax for you and for me. Why? Because we're free, but as not to give offense, go pay it for the two of us. You know, Andrew, what the world would be like if nobody gave offense. I mean, yeah. I just think of every day. It's, it's always going on. Right. Like, even little things. Yeah. I mean, St. James says that in his letter, right? I want to talk about controversial. <laughs> um, St. James, when he talks about, you know, what a 
what a just person, a righteous person looks like. One of the things he says, there's different ways to translate it, but it basically means the same thing. One of the things he says is quick to yield. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And even within our kind of own culture of kind of Christianity, oftentimes like that, like people would not put that on like a search panel. Wow, we're really looking for a pastor who's quick to yield. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that, that, that that's almost or like an elected official. Yeah. Or, we, or an elected official yeah. or, or somebody that we're like behaving Christianly. And I don't think it's, it, well, it's definitely not because um, St. Matthew's doing particular things here. This is sandwiched in conversations about the kingdom. Yeah. What is the kingdom like? The kingdom is not what you're expecting. It's going to distress you. It's going to be, um, it is, so Christ has the right to not be crucified. Right. Yeah. <laughs> everybody has the right to like not have a cross but he's saying that's not what this looks like right. sure you have the right and you know saint paul talks about this in his letters he's like well yeah i have certain rights and responsibilities rights and privileges but i don't exercise mm -hmm. for the sake of the gospel and so and what does that look like kind of non-abstractly i mean sure i have the so i have a conversation not too long ago uh somebody's like oh where are you at like politically or things like that it's like do I have the right to have kind of political opinions? Yeah. But maybe I need to give up the rights to like broadcast those and be divisive because that ruins any kind of evangelism effort for the gospel. So like I have a right to put yeah. this bumper sticker on my car. Sure, yeah. I have that right. But do I give up that right for the sake of Christ yeah. and his church in order for that? I can actually talk to people about him yeah. rather than about my own kind of like. Yeah. And the idea yeah, of rights itself. Right. People fight for their rights when they're threatened. <laughs> right. If nobody's threatened and you have no chance of loss, who cares what your rights are? You have everything you need. And that's the context that Jesus is trying to on two occasions, just in these few verses. You know, Simon, what are you worried about? I, I answered your question before you asked me. You want a coin? Go fish. There's one in the mouth of the fish, right? <laughs> yeah. It's it's so, he is so cared for. Why? Because he's now also a prince. And, and this is the context in which, like right now, that's where this whole rights are, because people are feeling squeezed, and they're feeling threatened, and the left is threatened by the right, and the right is threatened by the left, and we got to hold our you know, our line and we got to, you know, fight for our rights. The context, Jesus is saying, yeah, that doesn't fit here anymore. Because if you want something, go fishing, you'll find a gold coin. And he's saying to us all the time, don't worry, I got you. Watch, look at the lilies of the field, right? Solomon, all his glory wasn't dressed like them. So that being cared for by God is the context which we don't have to fight for anything. Here you can see how it's go get go get the fish. Is that why you said one time we don't really take a stand politically on a political issue, abortion, for example, yeah, from the pulpit or anything like that? Um, I don't say you don't take a stand. Yeah, you do take a stand. Um, we we have we have moral stands based on our our faith understandings. Um, I heard a quote. It wasn't a quote, but it was somebody was talking yesterday. Um, and what they said was every, well, it was, it was a, oh, no, no, it was a podcast. It was talking about 
anytime you take mystery out of a life of faith and you take um, the supernatural out of worship, as has been happening across Christianity, where the mystery, the ritual, the spirituality of we're encountering God, we're not just feeling him, like we're we're in the presence of the Almighty. And what we do should look like we have reached the gates of heaven. So in a lot of Christianity, that's that's it's like let's bring God to the people, which is wonderful and beautiful, and we are as much into that as anybody else. However, all worship has always been an experience of the supernatural, right? When you don't have that, this is what the person was saying, the speaker was saying, inevitably what you get is politics. It will devolve into politics because once you've left the realm of the supernatural, then you're now in the created world, you're in the governable world, and you're going to get into how this world is governed. And what they said was, once you lose that, the the uh, sacredness, the otherworldliness of worship, um, which all religions always had until the modern time, then you're gonna you're, you're you're letting go of the heavenly. Now you're stuck with the earthly, and you're gonna have to double down on the earthly. So he says, as if you have that happen in a conservative population, that church will become very tied into right-centered uh, politics. If it's a left-leaning population, you sever the the divine or the the supernatural. Now you've got it's still a church; they're still worshiping God in in their own way. But that severing means now we're gonna we're gonna really get into life on on Earth because that's what's what we're that's what we're left with, and it becomes politics. Not only politics, but politics becomes very very central to what's going on. I I, I found that in my conversations with our fellow pastors. Um, very hard to divorce, and this is among pastors, very hard to divorce a discussion on a modern issue without a political solution. So there we were down at, at Messiah, I think it was Messiah Baptist, if I'm right, um, downtown, and we were there for one of our conversations on race. And I was one of very few voices saying, our solution, if it looks like what you're hearing in political movements, then our solution is is not the Christian solution. It can't be. Our solution can't be a worldly solution. But when you sever that that divine interaction, that's that's what gets that's what gets raised up. So how do you speak against things like you know like slavery or the you know the the church collapsed in Germany? Right. How, should they have opposed the Nazis and how can you do that without being political or do you just let it yeah. happen? Um, I, I heard a speaker, this is a couple of years ago at a clergy retreat. And if I told you a story before, stop me, but somebody they were talking about how in orthodoxy, you're getting um, a growing divide among conservative Orthodox and liberal Orthodox. You have those that are, um, claiming to be more orthodox because they're more traditional. They do what looks like orthodox before. Others are saying, well, we're, we're looking at changing, but we want to change back to the original orthodox Christianity. His point was anytime that a solution or 
a an action looks somewhat on one side or the other, he says, you're not going back far enough into who we really is orthodox. So the question was asked, should we preach against abortion? He said, absolutely, orthodox should preach, preach against abortion. It's a sin. It's murder, blah, blah, blah. He goes, however, if you're going to preach against abortion as an orthodox, because of who Christ is, he doesn't come down and say, I'm the son of God and all you peons better follow me. He shows us the humble way, you know, everything that we've been studying in, in Matthew. He says, we're going to preach against abortion. You preach as if you're just as guilty as the person who's committed an abortion. Which you probably are. I mean, right. That's what he said. He goes, so don't you say in your pre-communion prayers, I'm the chief of all sinners. So how are you going to preach down to someone else and say, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. He goes, but actually, he took a step back. He goes, you know, what? that's really not enough. He goes, you can't just be guilty as guilty as them. If you're the chief of sinners, then it really is you're like one of the worst committers of that offense. And from that place of humility, you speak the truth and you say, this is a horrible thing. This is something that, that however you say it, that from our position of humility is wrong, not talking down to somebody else. He goes, that actually, no, that's not even good enough either. He goes, if you're going to preach against abortion, as we should, he says, you preach in the position of the worst committer of that offense. He starts from that place, then, yeah, you can preach from it. Now, compare that to the kind of voice we hear, especially in Internet Orthodox, which I do not recommend anybody explore. It's, <laughs> um, it's ugly. It's, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> um, but it's where, unfortunately, most people are getting their, their orthodox in the internet these days. Anyway, that's not what you hear. You hear very ugly fights back and forth and accusations about, well, you're really a heretic. No, you're really a heretic. and Your bishop is it. I mean, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. But it's not, it's not the way Christ would have said to do it. So, yes, we stand up, but we don't stand up in pride. We stand up in humility and say, this is what... You know, we we understand. I think our position in terms of abortion, particularly that you brought that up, but we should preach against it, but not until we're offering a solution. In other words, what are we doing to a mother with a, a pregnancy she didn't want? Are we offering to take her in or are we supporting her? Are we offering the adoption? Have we made those arrangements? Have that's where I think that's where I think our, our opportunity is on all these areas that we do something to address. We don't just say, well, you're a bad person. You did that. We say we're all sinners. We might have different sins. It doesn't matter what they are. But from our position as a fellow sinner, we want to help this situation. We're not just going to you know, point our fingers and wag them at people. That's very costly, Father. Yes. That costs yes. me a lot more than just saying, here's my position. Exactly. And then patting myself on the back. Yeah. All of that. Everything we've just discussed yeah. is very unnatural. Yeah. Very, yeah. And that's what he was saying. It was Father Silvio Bunta was the speaker. He was saying orthodoxy has always been primarily lived and then afterwards taught or talked about. He goes, with well, the problem with orthodoxy, it's talked about, maybe lived, maybe not. That's the front end. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. So only from a lived faith, which when you live your faith, you don't have the right to criticize anybody. Right. Now, you may speak a truth in love, 
but it's from a position as being a fellow sinner, not you down there. How dare you do that? Those people, how dare they? You know, it's. I'm I'm with you. I'm 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 just as guilty as you are. And how do we do this together? All right. Well, thank you, everybody. I thought we might get to 18, but that's okay. It's coming up, God willing. So next week will be, God willing, we'll start chapter 18. All right. God bless everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to see everyone. Bye, Father.